Lord, show us afresh this morning that what we have just sung, that you are forever mine and that you are enough. Naked I came into this world, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, because you are enough. So speak, and may your people hear, and may you love your people well through me, now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, choir and team, for leading us this morning. Outstanding. I love singing along with you. It is a privilege. It is an honor. And I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures, please, this morning to the Old Testament. Now, we've been in Mark, and we've been uh, working our way through Mark's gospel for a number of months now, and now we are officially on Thanksgiving slash Christmas break. All right, and so for the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking about Thanksgiving, and then we'll be talking about Advent, about Christmas, and this morning we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Job. So Job chapter 1 in your copies of God's Word this morning, please. That's Old Testament. That's the book that precedes the book of Psalms. I strongly encourage you to open a Bible. And did you notice this morning that we've outfitted our auditorium with brand new pew Bibles? Did you notice that? And so if you love the smell of new Bibles, just open one and take a whiff, a long whiff. Nothing smells as good as the written Word of God. You know, I'm old-fashioned, and I love to be able to hold God's enduring, eternal Word in my hands. And so uh, nothing against those of you who are, who are into electronic Bibles. You can use those until you get to heaven, all right? And once you're there, you'll get one of the good old Bibles, all right? But um, let me just say this. Uh, you can find your place for this morning's text on page 491 in the, in the Pew Bible. Um, we've received some feedback from first-time guests we've had with us that they were unable until this morning to find a Bible near them. And listen, there's no better investment that we as a church can make than getting God's Word into the hands of people. And so um, God has brought to our church family an employee of Crossway Publishers who was able to secure for us a significant discount. And so we thank that generous employee this morning. We let us be thankful for the written word of God. And, you know, every year as we embark upon the Thanksgiving season, my mind goes back to our former church in southern Illinois where the highlight of our calendar year at that church was our Thanksgiving praise service. And so on the Sunday evening prior to Thanksgiving, we would gather as a church to hear testimonies from people who would highlight God's goodness and faithfulness. But here's the thing. Those testimonies were given 
by people who have been walking through the valley of the shadow of death. People who over that past year had endured a severe car accident or the ongoing struggle of caring, of caring for someone with leukemia or muscular dystrophy or Alzheimer's. We heard from those who were struggling in that moment through infertility or multiple miscarriages. Still others had unexpectedly lost their job or had a spouse walk out on them or had a child publicly walk away from Jesus. And still today, as I stand before you this morning, years later, those stories have stuck with me. Because the most impactful stories of following Jesus are not those stories about how rosy and carefree the Christian life is, but how kind and generous and gracious God is in the valley of death's shadow. Because that's where we do, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, at all times, You know why? Because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Listen, we don't have to live very long before we learn that if we're going to praise God only on sunny days on the mountaintop, that there isn't going to be a lot of praising going on, right? Because most of our days include some form of suffering. And praising God in that suffering doesn't come naturally to us. We are much better complainers than we are praisers. And that's why Charles Spurgeon once said that the church doesn't rejoice enough. We all grumble enough. We all complain enough. But we don't rejoice enough. And that's because giving thanks in suffering is a learned response. It isn't a normal response. It isn't a natural response. It's a learned response. And it's a response learned only in suffering. It isn't learned in this room on a Sunday morning. It's learned in a living room on Monday evening or in a waiting room on Wednesday morning or in a hospital room on Friday afternoon. So how do we push through the pain of suffering and praise God in that suffering? I want to answer that question this morning from the life of an Old Testament character named Job. We find the backstory to his suffering right here in Job chapter 1. And then the next 39 chapters are all about his response to that suffering. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach all 40 chapters. This isn't a verse-by-verse sermon this morning. This is a big idea sermon. But to really get that big idea, we have to read the entire first chapter of Job's story. So, you look at it, it's long. So how many of you will promise me right now, before I start reading, that you will stick with me throughout the entire chapter? All right, come on, come on, come on. All right, at least 60% of you, okay? And that's a majority. I learned that this week during an election, okay? Job chapter 1, here we go. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. 
He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God, that is angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead." And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Wow. I know that in a congregation this size, size, many of you have had really bad days. But I would be surprised if any of us here this morning have had this bad And yet, from Job's story, we see the big idea 
of God wanting us to give thanks to him even in our suffering. And that is possible because at the end of this no good, very bad, very long day, Job falls on his face in worship and thanks God. That's his story. Even in our suffering, we can praise and thank God And let's begin unpacking his story by acknowledging that we just really don't know very much about Job at all. He's from us. Where is us? Nobody knows. And we can't, we we just can't be sure about where he's from, but when he lives, because we're not told in this text when he lives. Many Bible scholars believe that Job is a contemporary of Abraham. So we don't know much, but I think the lack of detail is intentional because evidently the author here doesn't want us to get fixated on Job's particular historical situation. He wants us instead to focus on the questions raised by Job's suffering because these are the same questions we ask. When verse 1 introduces us to Job by telling us, that what he suffers here is not a result of his lack of faith or because of some sin in his life. That this all happens when God's word says about him he is a righteous, he is a blameless and upright man. Now, that isn't the Hebrew way of saying that Job is a really swell guy who helps old ladies across the street and eats all of his vegetables and returns his library books on time. Job isn't just a stellar fella. He is a man who loves God and trusts God and fears God. The one and only true God. But then notice, right after this brief introduction, we get whisked off to heaven to a conversation between God and Satan. And God asks, where have you been, Satan? Like God doesn't know where Satan has been. And Satan answers, quoting an old Johnny Cash song, I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere. Cross the deserts bare, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. I've been everywhere. And I think there's something here for us in Job's response, telling us that he's been everywhere. Walking up and down the earth, to and fro. It's code for what we read in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. From Satan's own mouth, we get the truth that Peter calls us to remember in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. To be sober-minded and to be watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around the earth like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because in Hebrew, Satan's name actually means accuser, which should tell us what role he's going to play in this drama when God says, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Now that's important that we get that God is the one who mentions Job's name. Because it tells us that God's in charge of everything that's going to happen. God's got all of this under control. Even when for Job it isn't going to feel like it. Satan isn't running the show. God is. Even when Satan responds by saying, you know, you know, God, Job doesn't really love you for you. He loves you for what you've given him, how you protect him, 
And so if you took all his stuff away and you took away that hedge of protection, Job would curse you to your face, God. But God knows. God knows what Satan doesn't. God knows Job's heart. God knows Job will still praise him in the storm. And so, uh, and so God says, okay, Satan, you can take everything from Job except his life. And beginning in verse 13 of Job 1 and through chapter 2, that's what happens. Satan takes everything from Job. His wealth, his livestock, all of his children, and eventually his health. All of it is gone except for Job's wife. And you can almost hear a demon whispering to Satan, Hey, you forgot to take out Job's wife. And Satan's saying, No, that's by design. We're leaving her because she's a rather cranky woman. (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 9, she turns to Job after all this and says, Curse God and die. Now, before we jump all over her, let's just be honest this morning. How many of us in that moment would be thinking the same thing? At least we'd be thinking, what in the world are you doing, God? And then this one word question, why? And that's what Job is asking. Throughout the rest of his book, that's what he's asking God. And we expect then the rest of Job's story to provide the answers to that question, but that's not what we get. Instead, we get a lot of silence from God. Until chapter 38, where Job says, Whoa, at last, God, I'm going to get some answers from you, God. But no, instead, God begins asking Job a bunch of questions, 64 questions to be exact. He asked questions like this, Job, were you around when I shaped the earth? Job, what were you doing when I put the constellations together in the sky? And while we're at it, Job, where do storms come from and how can you predict where they're going? There's even some really odd questions. You ready for these? Job 39 verse 1, Job, how much do you know about the reproductive habits of goats? Or, this is my favorite Job 39, verse 13, why, Job, are ostriches so ugly? And then, why does a mama ostrich leave her eggs like they aren't even hers? Why, Job? See, God is making a point. Job, if you can't fathom the mystery behind natural things, there is no place, there there is no way in this world that you're going to understand eternal things. I know what I'm doing. You're just going to have to trust me because your perspective on the world is quite puny, but mine is perfect. I see all events in the lives of all people in all places and at all times from outside of time. You don't even understand the simple things like constellation creation or ostrich ugliness. And so if you're going to understand the mystery behind all the, if you don't understand the mystery behind the finite things, you really think you're in a place to call my eternal purposes into account. And then the book ends. The story ends but not without showing us the goodness of God, the redemption of God. Because God ends up restoring everything to Job, giving him twice as much as he had before. 
So it's definitely a good ending. But it's an ending without the answers to why. Why did all of this happen in the first place? We don't get those answers, and neither did Job. So there you go. 40 chapters of Job's story in 10 minutes. Now be honest, none of you thought I could do that, did you? But here's the point. Job is a real guy like us, experiencing real suffering like us, who's asking the same questions in that suffering that we ask, and yet he's praising God in the middle of that suffering. So what truths about God does Job teach us that will enable us to praise our God and thank our God even when we don't feel like it? First is this. In Job's story, we learn that God's perspective is unlimited. It's perfect. God sees and knows all things perfectly. We don't. And that's why in the end, Job says this about himself. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Let's just acknowledge this morning that we don't know very much. Would you agree with me on that? We don't know very much. Let me give you a couple of examples. We don't know why, with our high property taxes here in the northwest suburbs, And we don't know why, with the endless tollways that surround us, we don't know why we stay here. And then we don't know why Tuesday's elections turned out the way they did. And that is not a political statement, that's just reality. We don't know why the citizens of Montana voted to allow a baby born alive during a botched abortion to be ignored by the doctors and nurses until that baby dies. We don't know. Let's just admit that our perspective on this world and even our own life is extremely limited. And that's why God says, Job, if you don't even understand the mystery behind stuff like storms and stars, are you really in a place to understand the purposes of the eternal God above all those? I mean, do you even know, Job, how many stars there are? Do we know how many stars there are? Because astronomers estimate the number of stars in our universe to be more than 3,000 billion trillion which is, I've been told, a septillion. Now, we can get lost in a number that big. So let's think about it this way. Do you know what you were doing just a million seconds ago? That was the middle of last week. That was 11 days ago. Do you remember what you were doing? Do you remember what you were doing a billion seconds ago? Well, some of you were alive, some of you weren't. If you're fewer than 32 years old, you haven't yet lived a billion seconds. I have. I've lived a few more than that. It was my senior year of high school, 1990. I was sitting in class learning computer programming on an Apple IIc. 
And in the room next door to the computer lab was the typewriting room where we had real-life typewriters. 24 IBM Selectric typewriters. Remember those? That's how I learned to type. And then we'd go home and we'd play Super Mario on the original Nintendo Entertainment System. That was a billion seconds ago. How about a trillion seconds ago? How long ago was that? Well, I can guarantee you that none of you were around, and neither was I, because that was 29,600 B.C. Only God was here. Now, think about the fact again that there are at least three billion trillion stars. All of them created in a single moment with a single word from God. And every moment of every day since that day, He's given them their power to keep putting out their light. That's the work of the God who says, I know what you don't. I can see what you can't. I'm working in ways that you can't see or know. So trust me. And that's why Job says, I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And so the first reason that we can praise God in our suffering is that His perspective is unlimited, and then secondly, His power is unmatched. In Job's story, we see God's absolute power over creation, His absolute power over angels, even, listen carefully, even His absolute power over Satan himself. We see in this story that Satan does nothing except by permission. We see proof here that Psalm 24 verse 1 is true, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. Listen, God is in total control of all things in all our lives, even the hard things in all our lives, the painful things. It's what God says in Isaiah 45, verse 7. Listen to this. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God says, I create calamity. It's what Job says right here in chapter 1. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Please listen carefully. If you don't get anything else from this message this morning, please get this. If we remove God from our suffering as if he were some passive bystander, incapable of doing anything about the suffering we're enduring, if we remove God from our suffering, we remove hope in our suffering. I have sat in the back of an ambulance at a serious car accident involving members of the church I was pastoring. I've stood in the PICU at the University of Iowa Hospital with a mom and dad holding the lifeless body of their six-day-old baby. I've seen a six-foot-three barrel-chested man, the strongest man I've ever shaken hands with, left unable to dress himself after a stroke. And God was in control of all of that. 
I know that's hard to grasp. I know that's hard to preach. I know that raises a thousand questions in our finite minds, questions that I cannot answer and that you cannot answer and that Job could not answer, but it's essential that we acknowledge some way, somehow, in God's perfect plan, our suffering is controlled by God so that it will accomplish His good and eternal purposes. Listen. Do you know what the option is to that? The only other option, if we don't have a category for a personal loving God who's in complete control of all our suffering, do you know what the alternative is? Fate, karma, chance. And if that's the case, there is no point to any of our suffering. It's purposeless. It's hopeless. It's just some random act of bad luck. But if God, who is in control of all things, is the God who uses suffering and has used the suffering of His own Son to bring salvation to you, then you have a God who is capable of working all things for your good. The God of Job, the God of the Bible, the God of hope, who will one day wield his universal power to bring all our suffering to an end forever. But you can't have that without this God who is in complete control of our suffering today. Without this, in Job 1, we cannot know for certain that one day we will see and experience, Revelation 21, verse 4, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are done. They have passed away. God has secured it. God has promised it. And God will do it. He will wield His power to bring our suffering to an end. That day is coming, even right now, while we're suffering. Because thirdly, God's purposes will prevail. God's purposes will prevail. It's what Job himself says in chapter 42, verse 2. God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now listen, one of the most encouraging things in Job's story is that Satan's attempts to attack God's people only further God's good purposes. Just think about it. All of Satan's attacks on Job here provide us a real-life story that's encouraged millions of Christians down through the centuries. You think that's what Satan had in mind? Satan's purposes for our suffering are only evil. God's purposes for our suffering are only good. Satan's purpose is to to defeat the people of God by thwarting the plan of God. And yet, all his schemes only serve to further the purposes of God. You want to know the greatest proof of that? God's own son hanging and dying on a cross. Bearing the sins of all who will ever trust in him. It's what Peter, the apostle, 
preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, when he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus dies according to God's plan and God's good purpose. And yet at the same time, he was killed by wicked and sinful men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Satan laughing as Jesus is dying. My plan, my purpose. God in heaven rejoicing. Because through that same event, God overturned and overthrew the the evil, wicked plan of Satan to bring about our salvation. Do you know this God? Do you know this God who not just can do that, he has done that. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you have that assurance that the God of this universe, the God who ordained the death of his son to provide payment for your sin and my sin so that when you trust in him, your sins are forgiven forever and you're given a home in heaven. Do you know this God personally? Are you trusting in him? Have you come to him through his son Jesus? Have you confessed that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? If there's anything the cross tells us and teaches us is that God is capable of taking the evil plans of Satan and overturning them for our eternal good. Trust Jesus. The cross proves that God's purposes for our suffering are always and only good purposes, even when God lets us suffer to correct us. After we've wandered from him and he's bringing us back to him, it's a story of Jonah. Sometimes God's purpose in our suffering is to work salvation in others. It's a story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And it's a story of a man named Dave who died of muscular dystrophy. And when I preached his funeral, in the congregation that day sat a husband and wife who months before their marriage was on the rocks when the husband became Dave's caregiver. And from his wheelchair, Dave shared Jesus with that man, and God saved that man and his marriage. God's good purposes prevail in our suffering, even when that suffering is God's way of deepening our love for him and our hope in him. I think that's probably Job's suffering here. It's purifying his faith and hope in God and deepening his love for God. And that's why Job will say later in chapter 23, he knows the way that I take and when he has tried me, I will come out as gold. In our suffering, God's purposes will prevail because fourthly, God's promises will be fulfilled. Job did not know much. His perspective was limited, his understanding was darkened, his confidence was shaken, but there is one truth of which he was certain. 
It's what he says in chapter 19. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes will behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job's heart did not faint from wanting to quit. His heart fainted from wanting to see his God. Everything else was gone. One desire remained. I want to see God because he is infinitely more valuable to me than everything I have lost. You see, listen, listen. The greatest hope is the hope of a future that cannot be shaken or taken. That one day, on the other side of all this suffering, in my flesh, I will see God. That's what enables us to give thanks, even when we don't feel like it. Because our hope is that the pain and sorrow and trouble are a part of the process that is preparing me for that day when I will see Him. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. You say, Pastor Ken, it doesn't feel light and momentary. It feels heavy and long. In comparison to the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, of glory and the length, time-wise, of glory, all of our suffering is light and momentary and it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that health issue, that, that health issue that, that feels like it's working against us each and every day, God promises, I'm working in it for you. That miscarriage, another miscarriage, God says, I'm working in it for you. That relationship that's going sideways this morning and you don't know if you can get it back on track, it's for you. All of it. Preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison We won't feel that in the moment, but God promises it's happening in every moment of all our suffering. So what do we do when we're suffering and hurting and we've got lots of questions and few answers? What do we do when we don't feel like giving thanks? John Piper has said, Job's sobs of grief and pain are not the sign of unbelief. Job knows nothing of a flippant, insensitive, superficial, praise God anyhow response to suffering. The magnificence of his worship is because it was in grief, not because it replaced grief. So let your tears flow freely when your calamity comes. You can praise God through your tears when you praise him with your tears. The one whose perspective is unlimited. The one whose power is unmatched. The one whose purposes will prevail and whose promises will be fulfilled. And that's why we read in Romans chapter 8 that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because we are persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us at all from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And that's why we sing in the old song, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And so as we gather around the Thanksgiving table in a few days, we won't need to pretend like everything's always coming up roses. Instead, from the deepest parts of our breaking hearts, we can echo the words of Job. The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Help us, God, to believe what you have said. Help us in the midst of the storm to praise you. In the depth of the valley, to trust you. To thank you. That although we change and our circumstances change, you never do. Your love never does. You're always right and true. So can I ask this morning, are you a follower of Jesus? Have you seen with fresh eyes this morning what the cross is and what the cross has done and what the cross means? That God took in His perfect plan the evil, wicked, sinful actions of men and overturn them to fulfill his good purposes. That Jesus would die in our place, bearing our sin, paying our penalty, and he would pay it in full so that only by his grace and through our faith we could be saved. Would you trust in Jesus right now? Become his follower. Right where you are, would you confess that Jesus is Lord? Because you're believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And Christian, how is your faith? How is your hope? You're trusting. Trust him. He is worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.